Heavenly Father, we come to you once again, as we do each week, with a heart of expectancy. We're waiting on you. We know that no musicians can mediate to us the presence of God. We know that no preacher can change hearts. So we look to you. We ask you to do in us what you will. We ask for your spirit to illuminate the truth of Scripture, to bring conviction, also to bring encouragement to a firm faith, to strengthen us in our love for you and our commitment to your purposes for our lives. Pray, God, that today you would satisfy our souls with your steadfast love, that your word would be food to us, that the worship of Christ would correct our perspective and fuel joy. So we ask for your help now, and we look expectantly. We're waiting on you. On your word, we rely. So speak to us today, God, and make us more and more conformed to the image of your Son. Amen. Please open up your Bibles one last time in this series to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. Some of you may um, be big sports fans. I think there's a basketball game today. Um, you, probably not many of you are cricket fans. Maybe one or two. So you may not know who C.T. Studd was, but he was actually a famous cricket player. He was very successful. C.T. Studd was converted. He gave his life to Christ. And he ended up walking away from the game of cricket and giving his life to missions work. And he is famous not only for pioneering evangelistic work in China in the late 1800s, but many of you may be familiar with a poem he wrote called Only One Life. And the last two lines say this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. As Christians, we know the truth, don't we? We know what really matters that it's not our family legacy, it's not your career accomplishments, it's not your financial standing, it's not even your reputation in the world and what people think of you. What matters most is that the name of God is glorified through the spreading of the gospel. We are called to go and make disciples of all the nations. Psalm 96 urges us to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. This is our priority. This is our purpose. This is what really matters. That's why C.T. Studd walked away from a successful career and even the status of celebrity as a cricket player at Cambridge. As Christians, we know that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, that he defeated death and Satan by his suffering on the cross. We know that Jesus rose from the grave. We know that Jesus is building his church, that today he's redeeming sinners through his shed blood, and that he is making us into new creations by his grace. And we know that God has called us as his servants to be ambassadors who proclaim this glorious truth with our mouths and testify to its power with our lives. For those who've experienced the transforming power of God's grace, we know that this is what really matters. The Apostle Paul's aim in writing this letter to Titus 
is that the church on the island of Crete be healthy so that it might be effective in this mission, in doing the things that really matter, proclaiming Christ and living a life that honors his name. We see this concern throughout the book that Paul's apostleship had a missional concern. His apostleship is for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. We see later on in chapter 1 that elders are to promote and protect the doctrinal foundations of this mission. The truth of the gospel, they must be able to rebuke and correct those who contradict it. We see in chapter 2 that the character of the church is to substantiate the claims of the gospel so that by our lives we adorn the doctrine of God. There's this concern for this forward mission of the church, a concern for the things that really matter for eternity and how the life of the church plays into that. Over the past several weeks, we've been working through this little book, and this morning we're going to look at the final verses in Paul's letter to Titus, Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Follow along with me. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. As Paul wraps up this brief letter to Titus, he closes with these personal comments, a few final instructions for them. But I want you to see this morning that these final verses are more than just logistics and small talk. I mean, these are the kinds of sections in Scripture where you may be tempted just to sort of breeze on past and not really meditate and observe on what's going on here. But these personal instructions at the end of Titus, they remind us of an important truth. And that truth is very simply this, that healthy churches are committed to God's mission as a community. Healthy churches, the kind of church that Paul wanted the believers on Crete to be, the kind of church that God desires us to be, that we need to be. Healthy churches are committed to God's mission as a community. The Christian life and mission is one that requires we work together. It requires that we engage in our calling as ambassadors for Jesus Christ and that we do so collectively as a team. You see, God's purpose for your life is bigger than just your life. God's purpose for your life is bigger than your agenda. It's bigger than your personal priorities. God desires to use you to use us for his glory. And we all have a part to play. So my aim this morning in covering these final words in Titus is to encourage you to be part of what God is doing through his church. How are we to engage in God's mission as a community? What is it that we can learn from this passage? I want to share with you this morning four ways in which we engage in God's mission. Number one, we find this in verse 12 and 13, that healthy churches support those who are sent from the community. Healthy churches support the sent from the community. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus, do you do your best to come to me? 
at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there, and do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Paul lists four different men here, Artemis, Tychicus in verse 12, and then Zenos and Apollos in verse 13. And the first thing Paul does is, is tell Titus that he's not sure who it's going to be, but he's going to send one of these guys, either Artemis or Tychicus, to the island of Crete. Um, Titus had been left there by Paul, and he had been tasked with putting things in order and sort of organizing and leading in, in this, this growing, emerging um, body of Christians that was there in that place. But he's going to send one of these two men to relieve Titus of his post so that Titus could rejoin him. He tells Titus he's going to be in the city of Nicopolis and he's going to spend the winter there. If you think about what Paul was doing, someone like Paul who frequently traveled by foot and by boat, uh, winter would have been a season where you would have wanted to hunker down for a bit. And that's what Paul planned to do. He knows Titus needs someone to come and relieve him of his post And he desires for Titus to rejoin him. He wants Titus to come so that they can encourage one another, update one another, and so that they can continue partnering in the mission that God had given them. Paul wants Titus back at his side. In verse 13, he mentions Zenos, who is apparently an expert in Roman law. And he also mentions Apollos. Apollos, this Apollos, is probably the same Apollos who's mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament as a man who had a reputation for being a phenomenal preacher. He was gifted greatly by God in the preaching ministry of the word. And so um, he is going to send these two men, Zenos and Apollos, uh, and they're going to be coming through Crete and contributing to the ministry there. And it's likely that these two men are the ones who delivered the letter by hand from Paul to Titus. The way Paul writes this, it indicates that they're already there. They're probably the ones who delivered the mail. Think about that. Can you, be imagine, can you imagine being given uh, a document by an apostle, being handed an envelope and told, listen, thousands, even someday millions of people are going to be affected by the contents of this letter. So don't lose it, okay? Um, I want you to walk over to St. Louis and then take a boat down the Mississippi to New Orleans and make sure you deliver this letter. That sort of brings it maybe into our geography a little bit. Uh, But these guys had made quite the journey, and they had done so. They'd been sent by Paul to Titus, probably delivered this letter. And Paul says, I want you to make sure that they lack nothing, speed them on their way. So what are we pulling out from all this? Well, despite what it may seem, Despite what you may think about the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or some of the other men who ministered in that age, despite what it may seem, despite our maybe heroic notions of the Apostle Paul, he was not a one-man wrecking crew. Paul ministered alongside and with these faithful brothers. He was part of a team. He worked in partnership with these men who, like Paul, were laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel. These men were also persecuted for their faith. These men also risked their health with exposure to the elements. These men also would have faced jail time at different points. They're laying down their lives alongside the apostle. But notice Paul's instructions for Titus and the recipients of this letter. Verse 13, he says, Do your best to speed them on their way. See that they lack nothing. These men had been sent on behalf of the church for the sake of strengthening the church with Paul's letter. 
These men had left behind their homes, their livelihoods, their families, at least for a short period of time, to make a very difficult and a very risky journey. These men were not just out sort of raising money to promote their latest book. They were not self-appointed apostles or or self-made men who were campaigning to try to gain a following. They were servants of the church who had been sent by Paul, delegated a task, trusted to do something that affected the life and health of the church. And the believers on the island of Crete were to support these men. They had needs. They had financial needs. They had needs for food and supplies. Paul says, do whatever it is that's necessary to speed them on their way. In the late 1700s, William Carey, who is widely considered today as the father of modern missions, he was preparing to go to India. This would have been groundbreaking missions work. There weren't missionaries in India at this point. And he told his good friend, Andrew Fuller, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. And he's not calling India the pits. He's using a mining analogy to say, I'll climb down, I'll go down in there, but I need you to hold the rope. I need you to be on the other end. Andrew Fuller wasn't going to India. William Carey was. Carey said, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. And that's a great metaphor, I think. Because not everyone is called to be a foreign missionary. Not everyone is called to be a pastor or a church planter. Not everyone will travel and do gospel ministry. But we all can play a part by supporting the men and women who do. A healthy church will embrace the opportunity to support those who have been sent by the church. We have the opportunity and the obligation to meet their needs, to enable them to continue doing the work of the ministry. Like the believers on the island of Crete, we should have a heart that is excited to participate in the mission, a heart that is eager and excited to do what we can, to help move the ball down the field in supporting those who are sent out from our community. You might say, well, how can I support those who labor for the spread of the gospel? There's a number of ways. If they lack resources, then we should give. If they lack a place to stay, then we open our homes. If they need comfort, then we hug them and listen to them. Do they need encouragement? Then we write them a letter. We use the words of Scripture to affirm them and strengthen their faith. Are they lonely? Then we spend time with them. Do they need help with the task? Then we come alongside and we serve and we assist. This is how we see that they lack nothing. We do our best to support those who are advancing the ministry of the gospel. And we do this because, once again, this is what really matters. This is an investment in eternity. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. Listen, if our heart is linked to the heart of God, if we desire to see his glory advanced in the world and to see his purposes accomplished in the salvation of sinners, the making of disciples, the establishing of churches, the development of leaders, if that's what our heart is engaged in, that's where we're going to invest our time and our efforts and our resources. 
So the Apostle Paul, desiring to see the ministry of the gospel continue, he urges the church to meet the needs of these men and to speed them on their way so that they might continue serving the Lord. Listen, the church that won't support those who are sent, the church that will not invest in the advancement of the gospel shows an unhealthy lack of interest in the mission that God has called us to. It reveals a lack of love for God's glory, a lack of love for the lost, a lack of dependence on God's grace. And a church that has that kind of heart, that's not just unhealthy, it's going to lead to no joy, no reward, no fruit, at least to futility. 2 Corinthians 9.6 says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Listen, the church that devotes themselves to these good works, that seeks to give and support, that's the church that's going to experience the grace of God's ongoing provision. That's what God delights to bless and to provide for. You see, God's grace abounds in a church that joyfully gives to further his mission. And this is something that we do together, collectively, as a body. It's not just the job of one or two gifted individuals. This is something we do together as the church. We support the ministry of the gospel in any way that we can. We engage in God's mission as a community of believers. This is what a healthy church will do. Healthy churches will support those who are sent by the community. But secondly, healthy churches will also devote themselves to meeting needs in the community. Healthy churches devote themselves to meeting needs in the community. He says in verse 14, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful. Once again here, Paul brings up the necessity of good works. And he says that his desire for these believers is that they would bear fruit. He doesn't want them to be unfruitful. He wants them to be devoted to good works. This has been a major emphasis throughout the book of Titus. Again, just to sort of survey things. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 1, that the knowledge of the truth accords with godliness If these people have a grasp of the gospel, if they're devoted to the truth, then it's going to flesh itself out in the way that they live. He doesn't want them to be unfruitful, but devoted to good works. He condemned the false teachers for failing at precisely this point. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul says, I don't want the church to follow their example. I want you to be devoted to good works, to be fruitful in your ministry. Titus had been urged himself in chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Chapter 2, verse 14, we're reminded that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus died so that we would passionately obey him and serve him and bear fruit. Chapter 3, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things with reference to the gospel 
so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. All throughout the book, there's been this emphasis on good works, right living, a fruitful life. To be clear, we are not saved by our good works. We are not made right with God because of the quote-unquote good things we do. No, these things are the result of God's work of grace in us. And therefore, these good works do matter. And so as Paul comes to the conclusion of this letter, he takes one more opportunity to drive this point home, that they must be devoted to good works. And we see a measure of zeal here in this text. He says, do your best to come. Do your best to help them. Let them learn to devote themselves to good works. What Paul's after here is max effort. Not just casually doing some good things if we have the opportunity, but seeking to devote ourselves to doing the things that would honor God. And one specific work that Paul brings up here is not only supporting Zenos and Apollos, but they're supposed to meet each other's needs. He says, let our people, verse 14, learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Let me ask you a question. Are you aware of the needs of the people in this church? Are you aware of them? Are you aware of the social, the emotional, the physical, the spiritual needs of the people around you? Maybe think about this last year. I'm sure we could all make a huge list of the things we've done to meet our own needs. But are we engaged in seeking to meet the needs of other people? Family tradition that my, my parents have had for as long as I can remember is always watching at Christmas time that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. So I don't quote movies very often in preaching, but this is one of my favorites, and so I'm going to do it this time. Um, but if you know anything about that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey wishes he were dead. He thinks his life doesn't matter, and he'd be better off dead. But he's given this sort of glimpse of what life would have been like in his hometown if he had never been born. He wishes he'd never been born, and this fictitious character, Clarence the angel, makes it so. And he's able to see what life would have been like in Bedford Falls if George Bailey had never been born. And the reality was he had impacted a lot of people. It actually did matter that he was there. Clarence says, strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? I've often thought about that for myself. If I were to see what life would be like if I hadn't been born or if I wasn't in a specific community, uh, have I been faithful to seek to meet the needs around me? Has God been able to use me? Have I been willing and available? What would it have looked like at our church if you had not been here for the past year? Maybe just think about that. I think we need to have an awareness of the needs around us, and there needs to be a devotion to good works so that we are eager to meet those needs, so that we are not a people who are unfruitful. This has to bear on not only being aware of needs, but how we demonstrate care, how we use our gifts. And again, this is not a guilt trip. I'm not trying to just sort of make you feel bad so that I can force you to sign up for the things that we're going to announce later, you know. Um, that's not what I'm after. This is seriously a call to the church. We must be a healthy church that obeys our master. 
And he desires for us to be devoted to good works so that we meet cases of urgent need, so that we do not become unfruitful. That's God's will. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, In all things I have shown you, speaking to people he administered to, that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive? It is more blessed to give of your money than to receive money. It's more blessed to give of your time than to spend it on yourself. It is more blessed to give love and care and affection to others than it is to be the recipient of love and care in the ministry of others. Healthy churches believe this. And so they devote themselves to meeting needs as a community. Healthy churches, they support those who are sent by the community. They seek to meet needs that are in that community. And then third, healthy churches have a love for fellow members of the community. It says in verse 15, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Greet those who love us in the faith. Not just those who love us. Not just those who love us because we have the same hobbies. Not those who love us because we have a lot in common and our kids are the same age. Not those who love us because we agree um, about a bunch of different political issues that are going on in our world right now. No, he says those who love us in the faith. If you've ever been to the mission field or if you've ever traveled and been away from home and gone to another church somewhere, then I think you have a little bit of an idea of what Paul is talking about, that there is a bond that we have in Christ that is the basis for genuine affection and love between brothers and sisters in Christ. We share the same hope. We have the same mission. We have the same Savior. We have a common faith, a shared authority, a permanent future together with Christ. And that forms the basis for our love for one another. Those who love one another in the faith. That is something that should mark a healthy church. Our love for one another in the church is actually what is supposed to set us apart from the world. It's what makes us unique. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Listen, a genuine care for the well-being of our brothers a desire to do them good. That's the kind of love we're talking about. That should be the defining mark of the church. A defining mark of this church. I want you to think not just in general about the church at large, but think about this body, this congregation. This needs to be the defining mark of the church. We are to be a church that loves the truth, yes. And we must never turn away from that. But also a church that loves each other. We need both. We need both. And this love will be expressed in a joyful desire to meet one another's needs, 
to develop relationships with one another, to forgive one another when there's sin, there's offense, there's failure. While none of us loves perfectly, we are called to love genuinely and fervently. Romans 12, 9 says, let love be genuine. The love in this church is not to be a shallow love, a Sunday morning love, a slap you on the back and shake your hand love that doesn't go beyond that. No, it's to be a genuine love. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's not a fake love. It's not just a sort of southern hospitality, nice to everybody love. It is earnestly. And it's from a pure heart, not seeking to get something in return. Not seeking to position ourselves in the church in sort of a social standing way by networking. That's not what I'm talking about. Earnestly from a pure heart. As we love in this way, we become fruitful. Paul says, greet those who love us in the faith. He has a care for and a bond with those people that are tied together by genuine love that's rooted in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Listen, the danger in being unfruitful, the danger in failing to show this kind of love is not just that our mission as a church will stall, although it will, and it's not even that we might miss out on the blessing and joy of participation in what God is doing, although that will happen too. The real danger of not showing love, the real danger of being unfruitful is that it reveals the true condition of our hearts. And it may be exposing something that is very serious about our spiritual condition. It may show that there's no grace at work in us. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We all have room to grow in the way we love one another, but if there's no love, if it's not there, then 1 John says, you are not of God. You're not a Christian. If there are no good works in your life, if there's no evidence of grace, no fruit that is being born, then you are not born again. And Jesus warned that, using an analogy of branches and a vine, he warned that the branches that have no fruit would be cut off and cast into the fire. John 15, 4 says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. That's a sober warning. If there's no life, no love, no fruit, that's a dead branch. And it's destined for judgment. Listen, if there's no grace evident in your life, if there's no fruit of love and generosity and service to others, then that means that you appear to be still spiritually dead. And what you need this morning is not to try harder to produce fruit. You can grit your teeth all you want and try as hard as you may. You can't just manufacture this kind of love. Jesus says, unless you abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
What you need today is not just to grit your teeth and try harder. What you need is to repent of your sin, to turn from your unbelief, and place your faith and trust in Jesus, who is the true vine, so that you might be attached to him, so that his grace might be at work in you to produce change, to produce life, to produce fruit. It's only through faith in Christ that you will be able to follow these commands. Don't try it without Jesus. It won't work. If this describes you today, if there's a lack of love for the brothers, if there is a lack of fruit, and there's no sign of life, then don't leave here today without examining your heart and coming to Christ. Perhaps you need to come to Jesus for the first time and place your faith in him so that he can make you new, make you alive, and begin this work of transformation that starts on the inside and then it works its way out in love and fruitfulness and ministry. But that's a mark of a healthy church. Healthy churches have a love for fellow members of their community. And then fourth and finally, a final way in which we participate in the mission of God together as a community. Healthy churches are grounded in grace. Healthy churches are grounded in grace. I love the final few words of Titus chapter 3. Look in verse 15. He ends with this common refrain, grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Healthy churches are grounded in grace. The best news of all is that the kind of giving, the kind of loving, the kind of fruitful ministry that we're talking about here, it doesn't depend on your strength. It doesn't just depend on what you have to offer God. It doesn't require that you be sufficient for all these things. The final word that Paul gives after all this instruction, all this exhortation about good works and right living and love and fruitfulness, the final word he gives is a word of grace. Grace is the undeserved favor we receive from God. It's the basis for our salvation. It is the power of our sanctification. Grace saves us. Grace changes us. Grace sustains us. Back in Titus 2.11, Paul wrote that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. That's a work of grace. It saves us and it changes us from the inside out. Apart from grace, we cannot be saved. Apart from grace, we cannot grow. Apart from grace, we cannot love. We cannot bear good fruit. We cannot be devoted to good works. So lest we think that we have to pursue all of this in our own strength, and lest we start to think that we have to jump through all of these hoops in order to somehow earn God's approval, Paul brings us back to that incredibly humbling and that incredibly comforting word of grace. Remember what he said back in chapter 3, verse 4 through 7? You can look back there. That when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Listen, our whole understanding of the gospel, our very spiritual life in God is all dependent on grace. So we don't move on from that. 
We don't set that grace aside as we seek to do good works and demonstrate love and care and engage in the mission that God has given us. No. We must be grounded in grace. The church that succeeds in its mission, the church that holds fast to the truth, the church that bears fruit and impacts its community will be a church that is grounded in grace. That's why Paul opened up this letter with a word of grace. Chapter 1, verse, um, verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he ends this book similarly with a word of grace. Grace is the beginning and the end for a healthy church. It's the bookends. It's the bookends of what we must believe and the starting and the ending of, of how we must live dependent on God's grace, trusting in God's grace, relying on God's grace, communicating God's grace. Grace be with you all, is Paul's final word to Titus and those believers on the island of Crete. So for us as a church, as we seek to support those who are sent and to devote ourselves to good works and to meeting needs and showing love for one another, it must always be grounded in grace. This grace is what will both motivate us and empower us to engage together collectively in the mission that God has given us as a community, as a local church. This mission, this participation in what God is doing in the world, this is what really matters in life. This is what really matters. And there is joy in store for those that give themselves to this mission a life of partnership in gospel ministry, partnership in what the church collectively is seeking to do, that results in eternal reward and glory. That's why Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. He devoted himself to this cause. And he's calling the church there to join him in that and calling us to join in as well. Listen, participation in this mission is better than anything else you might run after. It's better than anything else that you might invest in. It's more blessed to give than to receive, promises our Savior. So let me encourage you today. Give your life to the mission of spreading the joy of knowing Christ. Spread that truth to the world for the sake of God's glory. Join in engaging this task with us so that together, as a community committed to God's mission, we would be fruitful and faithful. We would be a healthy church that is used by God to advance his cause in the world. You know, there's been a lot of growth and a lot of transition over the last year and a half here in our church. And it's been really exciting to see what God is doing um, in this congregation. And as I was studying through this text this week and thinking about the things that a healthy church will do and, and the culture of a healthy church and how they support and how they meet needs and serve and all the things that happen, uh, I started just thinking, um, what does God have next for Redemption Hill Church? How would he have us engage in the mission that he has given us? Who might need to be sent? What opportunities might we have to support how does God want us to demonstrate love and care for each other here, maybe in new ways? How can we ensure that a devotion to good works characterizes us as a congregation? These are questions I've been pondering, and there's much that causes me to be excited. There's a lot of things that we aren't doing yet that we want to do. 
opportunities that, that I'm praying God will give us in the near future to engage more fully in what he wants to do in the world. And I'm excited about that because what I see in this church, just to encourage you, is that there are many here who are 100% on board with that. There are many sitting here today who are eager and excited to participate to the hilt. I praise God for that. That's an evidence of God's grace. It's not pulling teeth to get this church to give. It's not pulling teeth to get this church to love one another and minister to one another. Not that it's always easy, but there's people in this church who really get it. And that's awesome to me. That's evidence that this church, that there's signs of health right now. I am eager to make sure that that does not in any way diminish. And I'm also eager to make sure that as we grow and as new people come to Saving Faith in Christ and as other people move to our community and they join in our church and all this is new for them, I'm eager to make sure that, that this never becomes diluted, that we successfully pass on these priorities as our church grows. There's a lot of things that we hope to do in the future. And a message like this is not intended to frustrate you, to make you think, I'm doing all I can. What more do you want me to do? It's not intended to frustrate you and say, well, how come we don't have 13 missionaries on the field right now? Listen, there's, God does things in time. What I want to do today is encourage your hearts to be the right kind of person so that we're the right kind of church, so that there is a healthy culture here, so that when God opens a door for us to do something, there's no hesitation because we are the kind of church that's devoted to these good works, that love others in the faith, that are excited to invest in the mission that God gives to us. That's the kind of church we want to be. And when those opportunities come, as many coaches have said in the past, when opportunity comes, it's too late to prepare. We want to be prepared now. We want to be ready and eager and say, God, what would you have us to do next? How can we be even more fully engaged in the ministry and the mission that you have given us. So I'm excited about that because I know many of you are right there. You're already there. If you're not on board with that today, if you're maybe in the minority here and you're saying, I'm not sure how I fit into all that, I hope that a message like this will encourage you to see that these are the things that matter. And Paul wasn't some one-man wrecking crew. He was, he was closely connected with these fellow servants closely connected with various churches, and that God uses the normal means of our obedience, our giving, our prayers, our support to advance his gospel in the world. May we be a church that is eager to do that. May our knowledge of the truth accord with godliness. My prayer is that God would be pleased to continue working in us, but also through us for his glory in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this little letter that you have preserved for us. It's so instructive. It's challenging. It's encouraging. It's so simple and clear. You've made very clear what it is that you want us to be all about. You've given us a portrait of what a healthy church looks like in the book of Titus. Healthy leadership, a healthy congregation, healthy doctrine with the right priorities, devoted to the right things. I pray, Father, that you would continue to grow this church, not just numerically, but grow us in our maturity, grow us in our dependence on grace, grow us in our love for one another, grow us in our devotion to good works, make us sensitive to the needs around us, make us even more eager to contribute 
to the advancement of the the gospel in the world. I pray, Father, that um, the good things that are here today would not diminish or lose steam or lose momentum. Father, protect us from complacency. Forgive us for complacency. Might we be eager to be used by you for your purposes in the world. And Father, I pray that you would raise up missionaries, that you would raise up church planters, raise up pastors and leaders and teachers, disciple makers, counselors, small group leaders, all sorts of people, so that we can continue to advance your truth, because we know it's your truth that changes lives and bears fruit. Father, for those who are not on board with this, those who may be living for themselves, those who may be only concerned for themselves, those who are not participating, I pray that you would bring conviction of sin and that you would draw them in and engage them in the work that that you would have us to do. Lord, some of them may not be believers. I ask God that today they would recognize that what they need is your grace, grace that comes through faith in Christ, grace that comes to us in the gospel. Lord, cause them today to look to the cross and to receive forgiveness, cleansing, and the life that only comes through Jesus. May his name be supreme in this church, in our preaching, in our ministry. May we give ourselves and spend ourselves for his glory and the joy of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.